Tonight, if you'd turn again to Romans chapter 3, and we're going to pick up in verse 9 and just down through verse 12. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever had the opportunity to speak to people about, you know, kind of what they think about this whole concept uh, of salvation in and of itself. Some of us have you know, talked to lots of people about Jesus and others of us have talked to very few people. Maybe some of us have never talked to someone about a relationship with the Lord, but it's an interesting conversation. It's an interesting study to talk to people about what they think it takes to be pleasing to God if there is a God at all. You have to kind of get past that. You know, some people, and matter of fact, most people believe that they're is at least some higher power, some form of being that uh, perhaps is greater than we human beings. And a vast majority of people would call that entity, that person, God. Now, we happen to believe that there is a personal God that you can know as Christians. We happen to believe that there is one God in three persons. He's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But if there is a God, and you can know him, And he wants to have a relationship with you. The question becomes, how do you do that? How is it that happens? And the subsequent thinking that goes along with most people is, well, do I really need to have a relationship with him? Or am I good enough by myself? Am I already morally better than most people, so I would naturally be okay with God? A large percentage of humanity believes in that basic thought. That if I'm simply better than most other people, I'm okay with God. If I have something that I can say puts me on a higher plane than others, then by default, I must be okay with God because they're probably not okay with God and therefore I am okay with God. And it's to that that the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit writing through him now speaks. Vast majority of people on this planet, and especially those who do not know the Lord, but even some who do know the Lord, Believe that they get God's approval by either being good or doing good. One of those two things. Either being good or doing good. That unfortunately, while mankind is absolutely capable of doing good things, and does. There are wonderful good things that happen all over our planet every day. Those good things, in God's estimation are not good enough. And the Apostle Paul is now going to make that case for us. And as we dig in, he's going to give us really what amounts to a a court case. And in a court case, there's a basic uh, series of events that occur. He's going to give us an arraignment. He will then give us an indictment. And eventually he's going to pronounce a verdict on mankind. Because the good news that Jesus Christ came to this world to die for all mankind needs to be believed by faith. And in order for you to believe anything, you have to believe that it's necessary. That there's some reason for you to actually entertain those thoughts in the first place. And so by necessity, in order for mankind to understand the good news of salvation by grace and through faith... We have to also tell mankind the bad news that you're not good enough by yourself. That you've got some issues when your place of comparison is an absolutely perfect holy God. Not fellow human beings, but God. And so it is there that we will go tonight with these handful of verses, and let's pray and ask God to speak through the power of his word. Father God, we have come tonight just again to study your word, to to feast on the bread of life, to understand what it is, that it means, all those 
principles that we ought to have in play in our lives as believers, whereby we could discuss with those who don't know you, Lord, the necessity of salvation. And Lord, chief among those things is to be able to convey the guilt that we have that's come through sin, our relationship to Adam, for we are all indeed sinners. And every last one of us needs a Savior. And we pray now as that case is presented that we would hear and understand and know, Lord, that your grace would abound in this place tonight, that you'd cause no one to be condemned, that people would simply recognize that we would know how desperately we need you because we are, in fact, all guilty. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 9, Romans 3 And it begins with a couple of questions. And I love this. Paul does what every good communicator does. If you're here tonight and you're a parent, I I can tell you as someone who's spent an awful lot of time dealing with children, a couple of decades, that one of the best ways for you to engage children, people who are younger than you, is to get them thinking by way of questioning, not them, but getting them engaged in understanding what it is you're trying to convey through question. Allow them to use their minds to engage in the process of understanding. And so the Apostle Paul uh, does this very same thing because we are God's children, amen, and sometimes we need uh, to be brought back to that level. And he says, what then? Are we better than they? Now remember that the last couple of studies we've done have really been this comparison. If there were ever a people that by their national heritage, their tradition, even their selection by God himself, because the Jewish people are unique in all of humankind. They have been in history and they are today God's chosen people. The Lord loves them with a special love. He has a special plan and purpose. So if there were ever a group of people that would be naturally already okay with God, one would think it would be the Jewish people. Paul's already made that case. He said, no, that's not going to cut it. The flip side of that equation is God has clearly said that there are Gentile people who are not of the tribe of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They weren't born into the Jewish uh, way of life. They're, They're not Jews by birth. And so they would be what we would call Gentiles. And so you could make a case if the Jews are in, the Gentiles ought to be out. Amen. Paul says, well, that's not the case. Neither one of them are out nor in because of who they are and how they were born. The Jews are not in simply because they're Jews, and the Gentiles are not out simply because they're Gentiles. And so now he asks two questions. Because here's what we're thinking. What about us? What about the rest of humankind? What about people who don't identify maybe in that way? Maybe you can't identify with the Greek mindset because that was the basic picture using the word Gentile. You can't identify with the Hebrew mentality of the way of living of of a Jewish person. So it wouldn't be a Jewish mindset. Are we better than they? Because he's talking specifically to Christians. He says, are Christians saved? Some other way? Are they in a right relationship because maybe they were actually better than Jewish people? Better than the Greeks? And he says, not at all. He answers his own question. And that's the beauty of God's plan of salvation. There's nobody automatically in. There's nobody automatically out. There's no master list of the saved. There's no master list of the damned. You're not in one and not in the other. You're not in or out. You can be either, and it is by choice that that happens through faith. For we have previously charged that both Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin. Because every last one of us. And then he goes on to quote, and he's quoting from Psalm 14, and it's a beautiful psalm. We'll look at that. Uh, in some detail, and so you get some of it here. For as it is written, now remind yourself of when that 14th Psalm was written, nearly a thousand years before the Apostle Paul would quote this. For there is none righteous, no, not one. 
There is none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside, and they have together become unprofitable. For there is none who does good, no, not one. So Scripture is now presenting a case that has, in these various steps, accumulated the mass of humanity. Jews, Greeks, Gentiles, even those who are supposed Christians, people have been listening to the gospel message and puts them all into one basket and says the whole world is guilty as charged. In the chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3, the Apostle Paul's already given us this picture of the Jews and the Gentiles, or the Jews and the Greeks. And he's now going to declare that all men are sinners, that every last one of us needs a Savior. And he's going to do so by giving a bunch of quotation from the Old Testament. You see, sometimes people think that salvation is a new thing. And in a sense that it is complete, that is true. In other words, when Jesus completed the work of the cross, salvation in that sense became complete because he died on Calvary's cross, paid the price, and thereby paying the price, we can actually receive the infilling of the Holy Spirit, we can receive Christ, and we can be in Christ and be saved in that sense. But the Old Testament gives a picture of salvation by grace and through faith as well. And that's actually the story of the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. That hall of faith, that roll of faith, that list of those who by faith waited for Messiah to come. They believed in essence in Jesus long before Jesus ever set foot on this earth. They believed Messiah was going to come. And they received that same grace treatment that you and I would receive right now tonight. God's grace made available by faith to them. Though they waited... A period of, in Abraham's case, uh, 1,500 years. David's case, 1,000 years that he waited when, after he took his last breath, waiting in Sheol, the abode of the dead, for the Lord Jesus to finish that work. But believing by faith when he died, received the grace of God, just as you and I would receive it now instantaneously. Being absent from the body to be present with the Lord is now that place. I want you to notice something here, the repetition of the words none and all. And and I believe that Scripture does this for a very, very, very clear reason. God doesn't want us mistaking and thinking that we somehow are better than other people because of any human reasoning. Not birth, not socioeconomic standing, not race, not creed, not nation that you're born into, not intelligence. No earthly standard is sufficient to give you a leg up on anybody else. Period. And so he makes it clear. He says, there's none righteous. Everyone, all of us have gone, away, uh, gone astray. We, we've all missed the mark. We talk of sin, sometimes we talk of sin almost in a, in a way that it's like a foreign substance that we don't know anything about. Well, you know, they sin. No, we all sin. That word simply means to miss the mark of God's righteousness. Take a perfect God and you shoot at a perfect God and try and hit the perfect God and when you miss, that's sinning. It's not a complex thought. It's something very simple. And so Paul begins by quoting from the 14th Psalm. And I I really want to read this whole thing for you so that you get the picture of it because the way it starts is extremely important. The Psalm begins with these words. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now I'll give you a little secret here. In the original, in the Hebrew of this, it, it says, a fool has said in his heart, No God. The there is isn't even there. It's such a statement, it's as if everyone who has right thinking already knows there is a God. And so only the fool says, no God. A fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And they are corrupt. They've done abominable works. There is none who does good. Kind of sounds like the Apostle Paul. 
Now bear in mind, Paul didn't have a Bible. He may have had a scroll or two. We know that he, he sent word to bring his letters, his papers, uh, to him while he was in prison. So he had some writings, but I guarantee you he didn't have one of these. Because this wasn't in print yet. So the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand and who seek God. They've all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There's none who does good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? Who eat up my people as though they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? You see, God a thousand years before Jesus set foot on the earth reminded everyone that mankind is not inherently good by God's standards. Most people believe that man is inherently good. Man, according to your Bible, is inherently wicked. Evil, deceitful, liars, thieves, and all manner of not-so-good things. Here's the good news with that. We're all in the same boat. Because there's none righteous, not one. There's no single person who's ever been born that isn't the Lord Jesus himself, the only man who happened to also be God, that's ever set foot on this earth that was perfect, that had everything it took to be right with God the Father. The rest of us, not so much. And yet a lot of people think they're in that category of people well, I'm okay with God. I mean, I'll actually tell you that. You can talk to them and go, well, you know, I'm not really worried about it. I do good things. You know, I mean, I haven't, I haven't done crack in like a week. I'm okay with God. You know, I've kept my fornication down to a minimum this month, you know. No, seriously. Seriously, I, I'm going to challenge you. Talk to people about what they think is needed to be right with God. You're going to get some interesting answers. I've done this for decades. Talking to people about what they think it takes to be okay with God. And you get some pretty wild answers. And people are sincere. They're genuine. They truly believe exactly what they're saying. Well, you know, as long as I don't steal as much as I used to. As long, you know, I, yeah, you know, I had this going on in my life, but I only do that like 10% of the time now. And they'll tell you that because they're down to 10%, they're okay. And you can stick all manner of activity in there. I've had people tell me, well, I haven't cussed in almost a week. When you talk to teenagers about this, it gets really interesting. From God's perspective, the entire world, every human being, is not good enough to warrant heaven by themselves. That's the story. And so now we reach this place to where man's inner being is in view. We're controlled by sin in our minds apart from Christ. We're controlled by sin in our hearts apart from Christ. We are controlled by sin in our actions, which is where our will comes into play without Christ. Without it, we do what comes naturally. For those of us who have been around since the 60s, you remember the old, if it feels good, do it. Sex, drugs, rock and roll. That, you know, that was the, yeah. And people thought that was how humankind was supposed to respond. That you could live like that and you were okay with God. I remember talking to Christians. Well, you know, yeah, we, we kind of watch how much dope we smoke, but we still smoke dope. God says we're guilty. And so now he arraigns us in the court case. And the charge begins with a couple of questions. The first is very simply this, what then? And the idea here is, what's the point in giving any further evidence 
because it's so overwhelmingly clear that mankind without God doesn't stand a chance of being righteous. And so Paul says, what then? If the immoral pagan, if the moral pagan, the moral or the immoral Jew, it doesn't matter if they're all in the same place, why discuss it any further? Because it's interesting how people respond because the moment you get specific, and I'll share, you a little, share with you a little thing about human nature and ministry, the moment you get specific about anything, does not matter what subject, and you equate it to the Bible, The moment you get specific, people will take that one specific area that you've talked about and they will then build their whole case around that specificity. And so if you say, well, you're not supposed to drink and get drunk, then here's what happens. Well, I don't know if I was drunk. Well, how many drinks is drunk? How much drinking can I do before I get drunk? Do you understand what I'm saying? It's no longer, I want to be well-pleasing to God. It's how much sin can I get away with it, and it's going to be okay with God. That's what happens. And so the Apostle Paul, now the Holy Spirit inspiring him to write these words, takes it down to the lowest level. He says, let's root all that stuff out And let's put everybody on a level playing field. You're all, D-E-A-D, dead in your trespasses and sins. And there's not one of you that's going to be okay without God. And so as you start to begin to unwind these things, he asks these two questions. Do Do we have a better basic nature than somebody else? There are people that actually believe that. That they buy themselves. I have talked to people, and here's another one of those instances. I have, had pe- I have had people look me in the eye and tell me that the reason people were born into Arab countries is because they were damned by God. I've had supposed Christians tell me that. I have had people tell me that, well, if they were born you know, in some place where the gospel hasn't gone, it's because God never intended to save them. Serious as a heart attack, folks. That's where this can go if you believe there's anything that has saved you save the grace of God. There is no human qualifier, not race, not creed, not your basic place in the world, not the amount of money you have, not the amount of education. Nothing is good enough. There's only one that's good enough, and his name is Jesus. And he is good enough in your place that you can go. You're still not good enough. It's his righteousness, not yours, that saves. And so Paul thinks on these things, and as he says these things, basically the question is, are we intrinsically superior to those other people? Well, of course not. And so he answers, no, there's no way, not at all. So in the entire human race, there's absolutely no exceptions. God's court of justice, look, we're all the same. He uses some, some Greek words here in, in, in this passage that are fairly unique. They're only found a couple of other times, but they are legal terms. And so when he says we, we've already been charged or the case has already been made is another way to look at it. It's as if the case has already been charged, tried, and found guilty, and there's no point. It'd be like double indemnity. It'd be as if you were charged again. It's so so prevailing is the case against humankind. There's really no sense in discussing it, but just so we can avoid any issues, we'll discuss it again. That's where he's at. So for your friends, your family that believe that they are okay with God because they at some point in time, owned a Bible. They're okay with God because their grandmas, mothers, aunts, uncles, first cousin, twice removed, used to be a Christian. And and I'm being a little overly dramatic here, but I've had people look me in the eye and tell me they are a Christian because their grandmother's mother's aunt was a Christian. Our whole family's Christian. 
And that's the reason they're okay with God, is because somewhere in their heritage, their mom went to a Baptist church. And you know, all Baptists are saved. And again, I'm not picking on any particular denomination. I'm simply saying there are people that absolutely believe that if you just belong to the right organization, you're saved. And so we're leveling all these things out as we dig into this. And Paul's going to present the case, and here's how he does it. He's going to give us a very, very heavy indictment. Notice what it says in verses 10 and 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There's none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. So in case you thought you didn't fit somewhere into that malaise of accusations, notice the word all and none. We're all in trouble. We're going to cover the first of the thir- the first six of the 13 charges that Paul levels tonight. And these are really important for us especially as Christians because they're useful as we talk to people about the necessity of knowing Jesus. And there's one of the great problems that I have with a lot of Christians and I'm not picking on anyone so please don't think I am. We oftentimes let people off the hook of understanding that they need a savior because we actually agree with them. Oh, you're a good guy. You're a good gal. You did good. Th- you went to Sunday school 19 years ago. Of course you're okay with God. You actually know the first half of John 3:16. You got to be saved. We talk to people as if we don't believe what the apostle Paul is saying here. All have sinned. And everyone needs a savior. And there's only one way to come to faith. That's to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There isn't another way. It's not salvation by organization. It's not who you know. As a people group, it's who you know as a savior. It's not what church you go to. It's are you in the church, the one and only, that includes every believer who's ever taken a breath. And so it begins with a three-count indictment, and that those points are broken down into three categories, the first of which is character. And then the way people speak or their conversation, the third will be their conduct. And tonight, we'll look at the first six. Paul charges in his indictment, and he says it this way. He says, there's none righteous. Man is universally evil, he's spiritually ignorant, he's rebellious, he's wayward, he's spiritually useless, and he's morally corrupt. Now, when you tell people that, you're not going to have many friends. And people get really, really, really upset. And and they'll throw out, well, what about Mother Teresa? Wasn't she good? Yes, she did good things. But was she good in her heart, good enough to, to warrant heaven without Jesus? No. Could she have gotten there simply by her own good works? The answer is, again, no. Was it her good works that actually caused her to be able to see the face of her Savior? No. And that's the point. People like to put constraints upon other people and say, you need to meet this standard, and if you meet this standard, then you're in our club. And God says there's only one standard. His name is Jesus. And so he begins by quoting the 14th Psalm, for the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You see, righteousness is going to be the theme that we're going to see throughout the book of Romans from here on out. And I want you to really get a hold of this. Righteousness is not rightness with mankind or rightness with rules. It is rightness with God. And the standard of righteousness is not my standard or your standard. It's not the world's standard. It's God's standard. It's absolute total perfection. 
So as humankind, we don't even have the capacity nor the ability to achieve that righteousness in and of ourselves. Because what you think is good, I may think is bad. What you think is bad, I may think is good. There, there are people who would totally put up with a vast majority of the things that Scripture says are sin. And they would actually call it good. Matter of fact, Scripture says that in the last days, men will call good evil and evil good. That's how messed up we are as human beings. We can't get it right apart from God. And so the issue is righteousness. It is the perfection of God himself that is in view. And it is there that we must be justified. It's there that our account has to be settled. It's there our debt has to be paid. It's not relative to other human beings. It's relative to perfect God. And so when you think of it that way, then you all, everyone realizes, well, I kind of missed that standard a tad. I'm not going to quite make it. And so the first charge here is that mankind is actually unrighteous. There's no exceptions, but people think they're exceptions. They think that their scales have somehow been balanced by their good deeds. They make up, they manufacture their own kind of righteousness, which is not righteousness at all. It is simply rightness compared to other people. Please don't be confused. All of mankind without Christ is absolutely unrighteous. No matter how good they may be. No matter how many good things they may do, no matter how many foundations they've started, no, ma- no matter how many wells they've dug, no matter how much money they've given away, no matter, no matter how many miracle cures they've come up with for whatever disease, no matter how much of themselves they have spent, without Christ they are still unrighteous. And so there's no way to earn it. And that's exactly Paul's point. You're not saved because you give to the church. You're not saved because you serve in children's ministry. You're not saved because you went to Bible study. You're not saved because you're in that, you know, that million mile club that can, you can tell how many times you went around the world sharing the gospel. You're saved by the precious blood of the Lamb of God. Amen? And let me help you understand it. You know, if you know anything about the Hawaiian Islands, they're the most isolated island chain on the planet Earth. They're about 2,500 miles from here, out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Now, we probably have some folks in here who are pretty good athletes. In my day, my longest long jump was about 22 feet. That's pretty good for a high school guy. So if I take off flying right now, I think it's more like 1.2 feet. But if I were to take and run to the, and jump as far as I could probably get out there, maybe let's say I could get out there 15 feet. Some of you in here might still be able to get over 20 feet. That'd be good. If you could reach near 30 feet, that would be the Olympic record. Uh, if you could only get about 2 feet, that would be kind of pretty pathetic, actually. Uh, and probably most of us could fall over and go more than 2 feet. But you see, the distance between us and God is like the distance between us and Hawaii. And so if I'm running down the beach and I'm, I'm booking, I'm like, Lord, I'm going to jump and see if I can make it and like splash out there in the water 25 feet. Yay, me! And then you come along and you jump and you land 15 feet out. You're going, yay, me! And then somebody comes and falls in the water and they go, yay, me! We're all still... 2,500 miles short, right? That's us and God. We're that short. So whether you can get, you know, your own personal righteousness gets you out in the water 25 feet or 15 feet or 2 feet, it's insignificant relative to the righteousness that God is in and of himself. And so it is there we understand how far we miss the mark by. Not by how much better I am than you, or you are than me, or we are than some other people group, or some person you know that lives on your block, but how far short you fall from him. 
And no matter how good you are, you're splashing down a few feet from shore. So the first indictment is we're all unrighteous. The second charge, we're universally evil, but we're also spiritually ignorant. There is none who understands. Even if somehow mankind achieves an understanding that there must be a God, which, by the way, Romans said you can do that in chapter 1. Remember, we studied there simply by seeing the creation. The creation itself testifies that there is a creator. So you'll have some understanding. But it's not enough to simply understand there is a God. You have to understand that there's a Savior. And that takes faith. Because you're believing that God sent his only begotten son to this earth and that God's own son died on Calvary's cross, was buried, and was raised by the power of God three days later and is now alive in heaven. That's not an intellectual understanding. That is faith. You believe that by faith. Now that faith is very real and that faith is explainable, but it nonetheless is faith. And so by our own innate sinful nature, we're not going to come to understand that. It's not going to be some mental exercise. I had a pastor friend who was a pastor for almost 20 years that realized he'd never actually accepted Jesus Christ as his own personal Savior. Oh, he'd done all the right things, gone to the right schools, become a pastor, pastored in a church. But he'd never received Jesus Christ. It was an intellectual exercise. It was a profession to him. It looks like a good job. Get to work one day a week. (laughs) Pay seems good. He finally gave his life to Jesus. You see, you can't come to, to know Christ without faith. That's why it says all we like sheep have gone astray. We're going to miss it by following some crazy trail. We have to have the Spirit of God work in our lives to reveal to us God's plan of salvation so that we can understand by faith that we need a Savior. Paul begins to lay these things out in just rapid fire fashion. Notice the third thing. Well, I'm thinking about it. There's a cool story. You see, sometimes we run away from the very thing that God, God is using to try and help us, don't we? Isn't it weird how we kind of like somebody actually gets on to, to that spot to where, you know, you're kind of going, man, I think this Jesus guy's real. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm freaking out, man. I'm going to have to give up my sin. It's like touching a nerve here. And then all of a sudden, you you start going, you're you're running away from help. There's a story uh, in the Toronto Star back in 1971 of a duck. His name was Ringo. And Ringo had actually, he was in a pond in Toronto. And it somehow, you remember back when we had pull tabs on everything? You know, on the tops of cans? I know none of you guys know that. But there were pull tabs on cans. We used to make belts and all kinds of... Come on, Ben, help me here. We did all kinds. We had hat bands, everything made out of those full tabs. But those, those things would also float for a period of time in water. And Ringo got one stuck when he was a very small duckling on his beak. And somebody noticed it following mom around. And so for about three and a half weeks, they set every single park ranger in the whole city of Toronto on trying to catch Ringo. But every time someone would get near that silly little duckling... The duckling, for fear of what might happen to it, would swim off. On the tragic end, Ringo didn't make it. Why did I tell you that story? Because that's people. The Lord's trying to save us. He's doing everything he can by his Holy Spirit to come after us. He's sending this person and that person and that word and this word and that church and that guy at work or that woman at work to send the great news of the gospel to minister to us. And what do we do? Well, you might catch me. And we run away. That's because innately 
we fear the very thing that is going to help us. We fear turning over the lordship of our life to Christ. We do, well, you know, I don't really want God running all my life. I mean, after all, I kind of like this part. In addition to that, we're also rebellious. Now, Scripture says we're not so rebellious that if we'll seek him, Jeremiah, amen, Jeremiah 29, 13 reminds us, we seek him with our heart, we'll find him. Jesus said much the same thing. John records that. Matthew records it for us. If we seek the Lord, we'll find him. But by nature, we're kind of seeking everything but Jesus, aren't we? You think about your days before you met the Lord. What were you doing? Most of the time, you weren't actually looking for the Lord. The Lord found you. His Holy Spirit was at work in your life and some divine appointment. All of a sudden, there's some, in my case, some crazy, nutty person who was a Jesus freak. You know, some long hair with beads. It's like, do you know Jesus, man? Yes, of course I know Jesus. My stepmom told me. My grandma even told me about Jesus. Of course I know Jesus. No, do you know Jesus, man? Well, maybe not. Who is this Jesus guy? Well, I was rebellious to that message. And probably you were rebellious to that message. That's why David said there's no person who really seeks after God in his flesh, in our flesh. And so the indictment is, look, we're not seeking God. He's seeking us. He's knocking on our door. He's hunting you down. He's sending the hounds of heaven after you. You ever notice before you came to the Lord how many crazy divine appointments you now look back in in hindsight and you go, man, the Lord was hunting me down. I couldn't escape the grace of God. And I don't want to carry this too far because you, you can run from the Lord to the point of running completely away from him. But you can, be, you can rest assured that the Lord is knocking. The Lord saying, look, I love you. And you can also bet that most people will resist that at least some of the time. That's why we need a Savior. Fourth charge is that we're naturally wayward. We're not just supremely rebellious wanting to do our own thing. That's why we call children rebellious, by the way. Because they want to do their own thing. But wayward is even a different subject matter when you think about it this way. The word that's used here, it means to turn aside from. And it's used in its military sense. It means desertion. It literally means that God has sent us orders from heaven. He says, this is how you should live your life. This is what you should do. And we are actually knowing what that order is. We're going to go the other way anyway. It kind of adds to that rebellious. Not only do we want to do those things because they seem more fun, but we're actually going to actively take and do the wrong thing because we think it's the right idea. You see, we're in trouble. That's why he quotes from Isaiah 53 as well. For all we like sheep have gone astray, every one of us has turned to his own way. You see, that basic pattern of living that we have as people is the evil way of Proverbs 8. It's the way that seems right unto man that ends in death. That's Proverbs chapter 14. That's the way we actually go if we're left to our own devices. But the Holy Spirit in the world is saying, look, there's a Savior and he loves you. And here's these crazy Jesus people. They keep telling you about him. They're telling you the truth. And they're in the back of your mind. You're going, man, the way that I'm going right now isn't working out too well. And the Holy Spirit breaks you down. And God works in your life. And you go, man, I'm lost. Now, how many of us get to that place where you go, I don't know everything I need to know about this Jesus guy. I just know I need him. I remember as if it were yesterday. 
the day that I gave my life to Christ. I mean, I could not get out of my seat fast enough to get down to the front because I knew that what that guy said, this guy named Mel Dibble, what a weird name. Thank you, Jesus, for Mel. I'm sure he's in heaven because he was 100 years old then. But he preached this really simple gospel message, and I just knew, man, I'm a sinner, and I'm going to hell. And it just resonated, not with my flesh. My flesh was going, no, you're not a sinner. You're a good guy. My flesh and my spirit, it's just like the old cartoons. Remember the devil on one side and the angel on the other? No, go ahead and do it. No, don't, don't do that. No, go ahead. Yeah, it's all right. It's all right. That was going on with me. All I knew is what was the angel one. It was like, dude, you're going to hell. There's a 13-year-old kid. I'm like, I got to go get saved. I don't even know what it means, but I know I need whatever it is. You, you see, you don't come to that by anything other than the Spirit working in your life. It's like, man, that truth became real. I wasn't a different person than I was the day before. There was a different message that had gotten home than there was the day before. The fifth charge will make it through these six, I'm sure. That man is spiritually worthless. And I I love the word that's used here. Because that term useless, and it's altogether useless. In other words, it's not just useless, it's really useless. Isn't it funny how people will tell you, well, the manure over here doesn't smell as bad as the manure over there. In case you didn't know, they're both manure. It's a very similar principle here. Matter of fact, it's actually the word that we would normally translate rancid. Now, I don't know how many of you have done this, but, you know, in, in those college days, perhaps some of you can relate to this story, and, you know, you don't really rotate the stock in the fridge like you're supposed to. And there in the back of the fridge is that half-drunk carton of milk, and it's about 12.30, you've been studying, it's like you're dying, and you reach in there, and you grab the carton of milk, and yes, mom, I didn't use a glass, and you put that carton to your lips, and you go, and the whole thing slides into your mouth. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. It's rancid. It's not good for cheese, it's not good for buttermilk, it's not good for anything. It is altogether useless. If you poured it on a plant in your yard, the plant's going to die. It's useless. It's the same word. He's saying, in and of ourselves, we're altogether rancid. Without God, we are useless. We were intended by God, created by God, to worship and praise Him. And without Him, we're useless. We can do good things. We can amass fortunes. We can write songs. We can create art. But relative to what He wants for us, which is his holy perfection working in us and flowing through us and out of us. Relative to that, we're rancid. We're sour milk. Even religious people, even churchy people. You see, because we think churchy people are somehow okay because they're Churchy people. People who can speak fluent Christianese. Praise the Lord, brother. God bless you, man. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Glory. Without a real relationship... Just as lost as the most wretched person in the most wretched circumstance, we are all rancid without Jesus. And the sixth and final thing as we wrap this up tonight is the charge that we're corrupt. There's no one who actually does good. This reaches to to an issue 
that sometimes we struggle with because what the Lord is saying to us is that even if we do good things, we very often do them for the wrong reason, don't we? We do good things so people will notice. We do good things so that we can earn favor. We say the right thing so we can be in with the group of people. Even our good deeds are very often not actually good. You see, he's calling into motivation the heart. This arraignment is so deep and so pervasive, there's not one of us that are going to pass muster. There's some of us in here that probably have done more good deeds than the other. There's some of us in here who are less, maybe we're not quite as spoiled, if you will. Less, we're, we're less rancid. We're just buttermilk instead of the really bad stuff. You see, but what all these things add up to is there's none righteous, not one. No matter what you are building your case on, you're going to stand one day before the judge of heaven. The judge of heaven is going to go, so sorry. People are going to say, well, well, wait a second. I built orphanages. Yeah, but you didn't build them for me. You built them for you. You built them so other people would think you were magnanimous. You, you built them so other people would recognize your philanthropy. And so that you could have those plaques on your wall. So that you could make it to those nice dinners where everybody got to brag about what they did. That's what this says. It says, even our good deeds, we often do for the wrong reason. So no matter what you're hoping in, what Scripture says is quite clear. By our human nature, we got no chance of winning God's approval. Zero. Some of us would be way more lost in one area versus another. But at the end of the day, everyone falls short. And we'll get there as we finish up this arraignment next week. Now, I hope this is helpful for you. And I realize that most of us in here are Christians, and I surely don't mean to beat anyone up. Nor do I want to leave anyone without the, the blessing of knowing that the grace of God is sufficient for our weaknesses. But this is helpful for us when we talk to other people very specifically as believers. Because sometimes we let people off the hook. Oh, well, yeah, you, because you do those things, maybe you are a Christian. Because you think that way, well, maybe you are. Well, there's one way that somebody becomes a Christian, and that is confessing your sin and believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other way. There's no other way. There's no other way that leads to heaven. Jesus made that so unbelievably clear. Uh, that one verse in John 14, verse 6, should stop people dead in their tracks when they're messing with this particular subject matter. That passage I quoted from Proverbs 14, there is a way that seems right unto man. But the end of it is death. Most of the world believes, hear me church, most of the world believes there are other ways. Let me prove that to you. The plethora of world religions. The world is inherently religious. The indictment is, without Christ, there's no other way. And so don't call people you don't know 
believers unless you ask them the right question. If you're talking to somebody about their faith, ask them who their faith is in. Because if it's not in the only begotten Son of God, if their faith is in church, their faith is in religion, their faith is in some kind of relationship or organization, their faith is misplaced. The only saving faith is faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. Your Bible makes that clear. Make sure that's the message that you have. Because people's eternity depend on hearing the message of the gospel. Amen? Would you stand and bring the worship team up? And again, because I don't know, because I don't know for sure, and never will, because I'm not God, I want to be careful to not assume that everyone in this room has believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to make the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords available to you tonight. Because if there's anything that I can derive from this passage is that we're all guilty. We all need a Savior. And so if you're here tonight, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I'm going to ask you believers, body of Christ, my brothers and sisters, you who are here and you do know the Lord, please be praying right now. Because there may be somebody here tonight that needs to know Jesus. That's you, and you're here, and you're in this room. I want to tell you a couple things about you. The Lord loves you. The Lord knows your name. The Lord has numbered your days. And the Lord desires for you to spend eternity with him in heaven. But without confessing Jesus Christ, without believing on his name, that's not your reality. And so if you've never invited Christ into your life and you want to do so tonight, I'm just going to simply ask you to raise your hand. Just put your hand up right where you're standing. If there's anyone in here, if you don't know the Lord, I see that hand. Praise the Lord. Are there any others? I want to just give you a few moments. I see that hand as well. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Don't be ashamed. Jesus loves you. He proved it by giving his life on Calvary's cross. Any others? Just slip your hand up. I'm going to have you stay right where you're at. We're going to pray together. Anyone else? Those that have raised your hands, go ahead and lower your hands. And would you just simply pray with me, Lord Jesus? I admit that I'm a sinner. And I recognize tonight I need a Savior. I'm inviting you, Jesus, into my life. Would you please forgive my sin? Cleanse me from my unrighteousness. Would you write my name in your Lamb's book of life? Would you be my Savior and my Lord? I thank you for saving me. And I believe all this by faith. And it's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. You just made the most important decision that you will ever make while you're on this earth. And I want to really strongly encourage you. We're going to have some pastors come forward after service. If you want to pray with somebody and and just ask any questions, please do that. If you need a Bible, we would love to give you one if you don't have one. If you need to know how to get started on your walk with the Lord, maybe you've been in church, but you've really really never sought the Lord, then I want to encourage you. Let us encourage you. Let us help you with that. For us as the church, we're blessed to have you join us, and we're looking forward to seeing you when we all get to heaven one day. Amen? Welcome to the family of God.
Father God, we thank you for your goodness, and we ask now your blessings upon this great congregation. Lord, pour out upon us, Lord, a blessing we cannot contain. We love you. We thank you that salvation has once again come to your house. Lord, for all those this week that have given their life to you, Lord, both Sunday and here tonight and throughout the week, as, as, as your gospel has gone forward, uh, Lord, your kingdom has had added to it daily of them that are saved. And we rejoice with the angels in heaven over it. Pray that you would make us bold in our witness for you. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for tonight. And God's people all said, Amen. Amen. Amen.